We now join our regularly scheduled program on 710 ESPN Seattle. This is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. It is Seattle Sports at Night. Jake, I thought we were going to get preempted because the Mariners, they were going real long today. They were. I kept checking the score and I was waiting for the game to conclude and then you get into the 10th. And the 11th, and the 12th, and then the 13th, and the 14th? Wow. Unbelievable. Did you ever, when you were playing football, did you ever play in any kind of marathon game like today we saw from the Mariners, a double overtime, thriller, or anything like that? Not to that magnitude. Yeah, I've, I've played in double overtime games, but, I mean, unbelievable. I think the one game that stands out is I was actually a ball boy for the Skyline Spartans. And they were playing Bellevue, and I can't remember the year, but it was an incredible game. It went into triple overtime, and the uh, Bellevue Wolverines were going to kick a field goal to win the game. All right, and Skyline blocked it, and everybody walked away, and everybody was walking away. They were getting ready to go to the next play, and Skyline was going to be on offense next. And the coaches are screaming and yelling, "Pick up the ball! Pick up the ball!" And one of the guys on the team for Skyline recognize what the coaches were saying and mass confusion Bellevue's going on the other sideline and Skyline picks up the ball and they run it into the end zone they win the game wow because it was still a live ball it was pandemonium I will never forget that being a young buck and man it was incredible but yeah this was a really exciting Mariners game at at, at certain points in time and I I didn't know if it was going to end yeah, I didn't know either, and there were opportunities, plenty of them, especially in extra innings. The Mariners loading the bases in the 11th and in the 14th with an opportunity to take the lead or to tie the game. Unfortunately, they weren't able to come through. Shed Long swinging on that 3-1 pitch that maybe looked like it could have been outside the zone, and if he had taken it, would have walked in the game-tying run. Some hand-wringing over that decision, but... You know, and if you're in that situation, I don't blame him one bit for being aggressive. I mean, you want to you want to end the game. You don't end the game with a walk. You, you, you extend it, which is also a good, you know, a good thing. But uh, you know, at that point, with a win in in vision, to me, I don't blame I, him for swinging away. Yeah, to me, I can live with that. Right, I can live with that in that moment. Uh, you know, being aggressive and going for it. And especially with it being close, you know, I mean, if it was if it was way if it was in the dirt, if it was way outside, uh, then you would have some frustration without a doubt, especially with the mantra of being controlling the zone. But it's close like that. You want to have a guy be aggressive in that moment and trust himself to be able to make that hit. And so those are ones that you can walk away from and, and live with. And in a year where you're trying to rebuild, those are those are games that you can live with moving forward, not the games that you're getting blown out 13 to 1 11 to 5 these are the types of games you can look at and be proud of this team moving forward and these are the types of ball games that you want to see this team uh put together and obviously win uh but i I, was there were some really good positives that i I saw walking away from this game i think that's a great point you bring up i think the mariners and and ourselves i think we can learn more about this team in these kinds of moments rather than the games that we've seen far too often this year where it's it's done by the first couple innings, where the Mariners are down seven, eight runs, and all of a sudden you know, you've, you're on your third pitcher and it's only the fourth inning. And I, I think today we saw the Mariners, they fell down 3 nothing early, and that didn't phase them. That didn't make them scared. They kept in it. They stayed in it against a team 
that they, frankly, don't have much business staying in it against. Correct. The Houston Astros are a, a an incredible organization. They've got talent even without Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa. And the Mariners fought back at multiple times. They were down to their final out at a couple of instances in the ninth and in the tenth inning. Encarnacion gets the single to tie it in the ninth. Narvaez gets the home run in the tenth to tie it. I think, you know, even though it it eventually didn't end the way we wanted it to, I think we did learn a lot more about these Mariners and what kind of what they're made of. Yeah. And, you know, we're in this we're in this season where we can't just look at it at wins and losses. We have to look at it from a broader viewpoint. We're going to get into that coming up in about a half hour from now. Are these Mariners realistically on track to compete in 2020 or 2021? But today for even though it was a 14-inning loss, I, I don't think you can hang your head too much if you're a, a Mariner player today. Correct, absolutely. I think that was one of the things that I had going into this season, Curtis, is with this team, and no matter what the output was going to be, I wanted competitiveness. I wanted competitive games. I wanted to see a group of guys that were going out there and competing every single day, looking to get better, looking to prove themselves to this organization, and quite frankly, for the veterans on this team to every other uh, organization in the major leagues to say that I am valuable. And I believe that you were able to get strong output from these guys and they answered my challenge or uh, what I wanted today. And yesterday obviously was a great win. Uh, but like I said before, these are the types of things that you can live with. I think we should stop wasting time. I think we should get into it right now. Let's check out what is on the timeline tonight here on this Thursday. And obviously the Mariners with a marathon game today at T-Mobile Park falling 8-7 in 14 innings. They now head out on the road for a nine-game road trip. Lots to talk about today. Uh, Coming up at 7.30, like we said, are the Mariners realistically on track to compete in 2020 or 2021? But also, we had me doing postgame you were at Seahawks OTAs today. If there was something going on in Seattle sports, we were there. That's right. We got you covered. Yeah. Blanketed the city, you and I, today. <laughs> we were not going to miss a thing. Not I, even a little bit. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into this conversation with you, Curtis, about the Mariners and where they're currently at in terms of their rebuild. And are, are they on track? I think there's legitimate questions as to uh, if they are or not. So looking forward to diving into that a little bit at 730 and uh, games like this make you feel a little bit better about that. Yeah, and uh, you were at OTAs today, and uh, you're going to give us some observations on what you saw the very final OTA. Without a doubt. It's crazy. It feels like OTAs just got started, and now it's concluding, and you move on to a mandatory minicamp where things uh, you know ratcheted up a little bit in terms of the intensity. Uh, there's a little bit of a difference between OTAs and the next three days of, of mandatory minicamp when they get rolling, and then that concludes, and they start rolling into – training camp and a, a month later so uh, this is an important time and I believe that we've gotten some good answers about what this team is and where it can be and who are some of the exciting new faces and uh, our guys improving from year two to year three year one to year two because uh, this is a very young roster and there might not be a ton of depth and a ton of established names but there is a ton I mean a ton of young talented competition and and that's a good thing that this team hasn't had in a long time if you want some of those answers jake is talking about i suggest you stick around because coming up 
In about 10 minutes from now, Jake's going to give you everything that he saw out at OTAs, the final OTA for the Seahawks before they head into minicamp next week. It begins on the 11th, the 11th through the 13th. So uh, that's the last time the Seahawks are going to be together before training camp starts at the end of July. So, I mean, the NFL season, it's getting it's getting close. Right around the which corner, is wild man. To I think can't, about. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the NFL, a, a name that a lot of Seahawks fans, I think, had been crossing their fingers for, kind of keeping that pipe dream maybe alive, that maybe he would come <laughs> back and be make that conquering hero return that, you know, he was with the Seahawks during their best years. Jermaine Curse, well, he's not coming back to the Seahawks. He signs with the Detroit Lions today, reuniting with Daryl Bevel, who is Detroit's offensive coordinator. Interesting move for Curse, who signs with Detroit, uh, an offense where he's going to get a lot of opportunities to catch the ball. They love to throw it with Matthew Stafford. Uh, also interesting that he would choose to go back with Daryl Bevel, a guy who many Seahawks fans look at as sort of the reason why the Seahawks offense may not have gotten to a level that you know a lot of fans had hoped to. Yeah. But a guy who was loved in that locker room, a guy who was loved in those offensive meetings, you were in those meetings. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Bevel was your offensive coordinator for a few seasons. Uh, what can you speak to between the relationships of the players and between Bevel that would make Curse want to re-up with him? Yeah, I think there were great relationships with Bevel. Bevel was uh, very detailed and organized in his meetings and had uh, high expectations for his players in terms of knowing their assignments and knowing what they were supposed to do at all times, and specifically the skill players, the receivers, the tight ends, the running backs. He really made sure that they were on their P's and Q's, uh, and and it showed the level of detail and, and chemistry that Russell had with those guys, the Doug Baldwin's and Jermaine Curses. Uh, there was a high level of trust, and I believe that this is a great opportunity for Jermaine to get his career back on track. Uh, Daryl Bevel obviously knows how to get Jermaine in his best spots and also can go in there with a room of receivers there in Detroit that aren't necessarily uh, exploding off the page. There is room for Jermaine Curse uh, to get plenty of playing time and to make himself very quickly a reliable target for Matthew Stafford. And I would I believe that he's going to have a big uptick in production uh, in this 2019 season with the familiarity with Darrell Bevel. And also, I think Matthew Stafford is going to really love Jermaine Curse, knowing he's going to be at the right place at the right time. And Jermaine is an underrated receiver in this league, without a doubt. And when he worked and when he got into the New York Jets and started working in the slot a little bit more, I really think you saw his game kind of take off. And I believe that's more of where he will be uh, for this Detroit team. I feel like if you're a veteran receiver, it's a lot better of a spot to be catching passes from an established veteran like Matthew Stafford than it is from a rookie who's getting his feet wet and Sam Darnold, a rookie who, as we saw at USC and then also at times with the Jets, struggled with accuracy a little bit. Uh, you know, Curse's numbers, his efficiency wasn't normally where it was when he was with the Seahawks, and obviously when you've got a quarterback like Russell Wilson throwing to you, those numbers are going to be up. Uh, so maybe Jermaine Curse sees an uptick in his production heading to Detroit to catch passes from Matthew Stafford right now. Some NBA Finals. Raptors, they take a 2-1 series lead on the Warriors. Kevin Durant has been ruled out, I believe, for Game 4 already. Uh, but that hasn't been the story today in the NBA. As 
I think a lot of people would kind of hope it would. It's been the story of Kyle Lowry, Raptors point guard, and Golden State Warriors minority owner, uh, who got into a bit of a shoving match during the pace of play last night, and the minority owner said some bad words at Kyle Lowry and now has been banned from the Warriors arena for at least a season and has been fined $500,000. Just an absolutely ugly situation. We talked about this a couple months ago when Russell Westbrook had that incident at a Utah Jazz game where a fan yelled some pretty nasty things his way and he heard it and and that fan was banned from the arena. It's... I don't know if this is a problem specific to the NBA, but it's time for these incidents to stop. Athletes are people too, and they do not need to be... It's okay to yell at athletes. It's okay to boo them. It's okay to talk trash to them, but don't overstep a line. Don't overstep a line and say something that you wouldn't say to anybody else. Just because they make a lot of money, just because that they are these huge hulking athletes doesn't mean that they don't get hurt by words too well for sure but i think also you look at this and it kind of becomes a gladiator mentality where everybody is just kind of out for blood as a fan you get caught up in the moment and it becomes more fanatical than anything else and and these are the lines that get crossed that are unacceptable uh and and so i believe that this is a situation that hopefully it never happens again we've seen it a little bit with russell westbrook earlier in the year not nearly to this magnitude uh, and so hope this ne- this isn't a trend coming into the NBA. And if there if it is, then they have to seriously consider what those courtside seats eventually look like. And maybe they have to. Do they put a barrier? Exactly. On? I mean, there's there's now you get into that conversation. And so uh, I believe that this is something that you're not going to see a lot moving forward. But just fascinating to see that people feel that they have the right to do that in that kind of moment in that game. Uh, it just something's not right in that in that area. I mean, it's the NBA Finals. Like everybody, just chill out, all right? Like let's let's take a breath, let's take a step back, and really like let's be cool to each other. Uh, some lighter note here: uh, Brent Stecker, who is one of the great people here at Seven Ten. He he is the editor of Seven Ten Sports dot com. He's known for his theories or his conspiracy theories around sports. Yes, uh, quickly learned that. Yeah, he's got one on the NHL Seattle team colors. Now, if you haven't seen this, their official NHL.com Seattle NHL website launched yesterday. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the banner across the page on top, it's got sort of a a light red, almost a salmon color, and then a lighter blue shade, almost kind of like a light green. Yeah. And... Those kinds of colors normally associated with, I think, fish, right? Yes. Obviously a salmon color. It's true. Yeah. They're very unique colors, without a doubt. Uh, And so I believe, right, his uh, theory is that the... This means it's going to be a fish nickname. His his guess is Sockeyes. Yes. How do you feel about that? I I haven't been on Team Sockeyes. I've been on Team Steelheads. Which okay. is also yes. another fish, which yes. I think could be. There's history of that nickname in Seattle. Uh, I believe it was the Negro League team in, in town had that as their team nickname. To me, the the sockeyes are they're bottom feeders. They're not yeah. like they're not like uh, the cool salmon. They're they're the bottom feeders of salmon. 
right? So let's get the steelheads. That sounds a little bit more yeah. uh, tougher. And I also would be, I'd be in for the Metropolitans. I'd be in for the Totems. I the think, Emeralds. I, I, just something better than the Sockeyes, please. I know that that's something floated around there, but please not the Sockeyes. And let's not, look, those colors are, they might look cool for a website, but let's not put our our NHL team in those colors. Please. Yeah, like, just please. Like, I got... I got cash to burn. I want to be buying some gear, right? And I know you do too. You want you want jerseys and hats too. And I know you listening out there, you want to you want to buy gear as well. Do you want salmon and like a a lighter blue? Do you want that as your team colors? Because that's that's what their website is right now. We're not saying that this is a guarantee. We're not saying that this is what it's going to be the end all be all. But uh, let's you know it definitely grabs your attention. Uh, if you have got anything to say tonight, the Coors Light text line is there for you. 710-710, that is the place to be. We're going to need your text questions later on in this one, 845. It's time for you to, or it'll be time for you to ask us anything. We've got a lot to get to tonight, including Jake, you were out at Seahawks OTAs today. We want to know what you saw with your very own eyes, your quarterback eyes, the quarterback guru that you are. We want to know exactly what it is that you observed at Seahawks practice. That's up next. Curtis Rogers and the quarterback, Jay Keeps, right here. Seattle Sports Night on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jay Keeps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. Welcome back into Seattle Sports at Night. A lot of text coming in on the Coors Light text line. I tell you what. From when the NHL Seattle franchise was like first given life back, I think it was December of this last year when they were when it was made official. The one conversation that gets the most response, whether it be online, on social media, or on this text line here, the Coors Light text line seven ten seven ten. Yes, it's nickname and team colors. Everybody wants their say <laughs> and. Like we we opened up that can of worms and you guys came in strong on the Coors Light text line uh, from the three six zero Jake. You're not making friends with the three six zero here. It says you couldn't be more wrong about sockeye salmon, Jake. They are certainly not the bottom feeders of the salmon world. There's a huge percentage of people that know and, and consider sockeye that it's the best eating salmon there is. You're right, three six zero. You're completely right, and I did not. That is one of those things where you read through an article and you do not read <laughs> through it all the way because you find exactly what you want to see. I saw that they were the smallest species of salmon, but yet they are known for being a uh, very good tasting salmon. But also, it goes to my point. One, I don't like the name, but two. I don't want to be known as something that's delicious to be devoured. I don't want other teams devouring our team, beating up on our team. I want something that's tough and rugged. Uh, so that's what I'm looking for in my NHL franchise. I might be on an island on this one, but I don't think I am. Jake, how dare you not do your salmon research before coming in tonight? Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I know what region we're in, Curtis. That's horrible. What, what, what's wrong with me? Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, so keep those texts coming into the Coors Light text line, 710-710. But, Jake, you were out in Renton this afternoon for the final OTA of the Seahawks offseason. Next week they begin minicamp in full swing uh, June 11th through the 13th, and that'll be the last time – they are together as a team before training camp starts. They get about a month, month and a half off, the summer break, as it were, for the NFL. And uh, 
this is the last opportunity for a lot of guys to make an impression before minicamp begins next week. Jake, you were out at practice today. What was the one thing, uh, above all, that stood out to you specifically today over at Seahawks headquarters? Well, I think the first thing is that uh, Gary Jennings, our fourth-round pick, a receiver out of West Virginia, he was actually practicing today. Whoa. Uh, he was not participating in uh, team drills in terms of seven-on-seven and 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 11-on-11 11 drills, but he was out there an individual. So if it was non-contact, going, not going against the defense, he was participating, he was running and catching. It looked smooth out there, but they're definitely trying to take care of him. And I don't know if they're going to continue to progress him along and have him be a little bit more active in, in mandatory minicamp, uh, or they're just going to keep him on this progress over the next couple days as they break. Uh, and just make sure that he's ready to go 100% going into training camp. To me, that's a huge piece. And for Gary Jennings, he is not a lock to make this roster, guys. Even though he's a fourth-round pick, and I, I like this kid a lot, this is a very competitive group. And if you can't play, if you can't get yourself healthy and get yourself on the field, you've got no shot to make this roster. And there is no room for you... Uh, to kind of be hanging around and, and have a hurt hamstring. So I believe that he's behind the eight ball on this just a little bit, but he's got a chance through training camp and through preseason games to make a name for himself. So to me, that was a very positive thing moving forward because he has not participated in anything. Yeah. He's just been staying on the sideline. And considering how, I'm not going to say desperate the Seahawks wide receiver depth situation is, but how important the wide receiver depth situation right now is to get a healthy body out there and to get a guy who a lot has been invested in. A fourth-round pick, I mean, that is that is a spot in the draft where you are expected to make a roster. You're expected to be one of the 53 and to get Gary Jennings finally healthy and finally back out on the field when he missed, he missed I believe, rookie minicamp as well including the very first part of OTAs. So to get him healthy heading into minicamp and then hopefully get him some extra rest over the course of that summer break, hopefully he'll be ready to go full swing by training camp because, I mean, you've been in those locker rooms. You've been on the practice field as a young player in this league. This time of year when you're trying to make it into the NFL, this like rookie minicamp and OTAs, that is an important stage of your development. Without a doubt. Uh, so that was very positive to me. The other thing that I, I walked away from the completion of OTAs was uh, Jacob Hollister, tied in from the New England Patriots. Uh, I am a big, big-time fan of his. Uh, he was probably one of the top performers, if not the top performer, uh, for the Seahawks in OTAs. He, it just seemed that he was always open, was in the right place at the right time, and I know that the coaching staff and the players have really taken notice of Jacob Hollister. So that was something that really stood out to me and is going to make that tight end competition very interesting. Uh, another interesting battle moving forward is the slot receivers. Right now, as it shapes up, it looks like John Ursua, looks like Terry Wright, undrafted rookie out of Purdue, has, done, has made a lot of plays. Um, and it really comes down to can they trust him? Can he be reliable? On the little details, uh, he, he certainly has shown a knack for making plays, uh, but can the quarterback, can the coaches trust him to be in the right place at the right time and handle his job? And the third guy is Keenan Reynolds from last year. He's going into year two with the Seahawks. He's made a ton of big plays. He had a huge 
Huge play down the middle of the field on a deep play-action pass from Russell Wilson. It was an incredible throw, an incredible catch uh, from Keenan Reynolds. Got past behind the safeties, and uh, those are the types of plays that you want to continue to see those guys make. And really for those guys right there, those are young players in this league, can they be reliable? That's ultimately what it's going to come down to. Who can win this slot receiver job is reliability. And, yes, playmaking ability has a big factor into it. But can Russell trust you to be in the right place at the right time and when he throws you the ball that you're catching it and you're developing that that trust? And that's a huge part in all of this. Um, and that's something to keep an eye on moving forward. Cody Barton, linebacker Cody Barton, is ridiculous he is really really good as of right now we don't know what he looks like in pads but if he is anywhere near what he is showing right now which I firmly believe he is this guy is a pro and this guy is ready to play right now and and if it wasn't for Michael Kendricks and KJ Wright I believe that this guy would be a marquee linebacker heading into the season so I, I think that this guy is the real deal and and I'm excited to see what he can contribute on special teams and they're going to have to try and find a way to get this guy on the field, uh, whether it's playing Sam linebacker or something, because this guy is really, really fun uh, to watch in practice. Just has really strong head on his shoulders. Um, and I would say probably the biggest takeaway from the OTAs for me is not that the secondary was a disaster by any means, but the secondary is still a massive question to me moving forward. I know Trey Flowers and, and Shaq Griffin uh, went on yesterday and uh, had some great interviews and and said all the right things. But from what I've seen in OTAs, I'm not fully bought in that these guys have made that transition yet. I believe Trey Flowers is on a steady progression, but I don't know if Shaq Griffin is ready to vault himself to be that number one corner and be regarded as such across the NFL and be one of those feared corners that is locking down his side. I hope that he can be that player, and I'm rooting for both of those guys. Uh, but from what I've seen so far, I've not seen that type of play and that level of play. Now, they can't make plays on the ball during OTAs. That's kind of the rules of this time of the year with the NFLPA and the CBA agreement. So you're going to see more of that once they get into training camp. They start putting the pads on. But from what I saw, there's a couple things that you look at. How are they winning at the line of scrimmage? How much are they getting beat by? Are they are they being heady in their in – their, um, uh, coverage assignments and so far they've done a good job just not to the level of, of progression of what we want to see they've uh, Shaq Griffin's gotten himself in better shape and I, I I like what they're saying but ultimately they still have a lot of work to do to ultimately be where they need this group to be if they're going to uh, take a huge leap if the Seahawks defense is going to take a huge leap moving forward into 2019. About 15 minutes from now, Jake is going to answer four of the biggest football questions that we got. That's true. There there are no four bigger questions than the ones that are coming up I, I in got 15 you. minutes from I now. got you. I got you on these four questions right here. Yeah, Jake is not going to lead us astray, including who made the best impression on him over the course of the entire OTAs. But coming up next, the Mariners... With a couple of wild games the last two days, he had the 14-1 to game a night ago, and then today 14 innings where they fell to the Astros. Let's take a broader look at this Mariners team, though. Are they really on track to compete in 2020 or in 2021? We answer that next. Curtis Rogers, Jay Keeps, Seattle Sports Tonight on 710.
ESPN Seattle. Live from the Alaska Airlines studio, this is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. Text from the 253 coming in on the Coors Light text line. Talking about Jake's OTA observations today. They say, Jake, I love your expertise. So are you telling us that you believe the secondary could be in for struggles this year? Well, I here's the thing. I don't believe that they're going to take a step back from last year, but there is potential that they could stay stagnant. If you don't have Shaq Griffin stepping up and taking a leap forward from what he did last season, if Trey Flowers stays the same and doesn't progress, those are things that, that give you cause for concern. And also, who wins the the next the safety job next to Bradley McDougal? Is it Marquise Blair, Lane O'Hill, Tedrick Thompson? And do those guys make an immediate impact, or are they still trying to figure themselves out and still trying to uh, absorb the offense, or sorry, absorb the defense and and get confident as they play? You want a guy playing, especially in that safety position, whoever it's going to be that they are going to play instinctively, that they're not out there thinking, worried about messing up, that they trust themselves and they are flying around. And right now I believe Marquise Blair is that guy. And I, again, I am very hopeful of what Shaq and Trey Flowers can ultimately be in 2019. They're saying all the right things. I think they have walked the walk so far, but I have not seen them just be absolutely dominant during OTAs like I have seen and experienced with my own eyes with Richard Sherman and Justin Coleman and, uh, and, and Byron Maxwell and, and uh, Brandon Browner and those guys. Those guys were practicing, and the, the lanes that you had to throw in as a quarterback were razor small, and I have not seen that so far. Now, this is just one phase of the offseason. They can continue to progress and get better, and I'm not saying that they won't get better. It's just what I've seen so far. I'm telling you. If there's a set of eyes you want to trust between us two, between Jake and myself, trust Jake's because I'm wearing glasses. That's that's all I'm saying. Trust uh, Jake and what he's seeing. Well, when it comes to these Mariners, Curtis, that we're about to dive into right now, you are the go-to guy okay. and the guy that okay. I will be leaning heavily on uh, because this is a question that I definitely have uh, for these Mariners. Uh, Jerry DePoto, when you talk about rebuilding right, and tearing things down to the studs, as they have done and that they're currently doing, looking as they are been told uh, that they are fire-selling their veterans right now. And uh, where are they currently at? Are they on track, Curtis? Jerry DePoto said 2020 to 2021 was their target timeline to compete uh, and get themselves back into not just a playoff contention, but World Series contention. Where are they at? I think Jerry DePoto, in hindsight, if he could do it over, and I don't know if he would ever say this out loud, but if he could do it over, I don't think he would have given 2020 as a date for the window of contention to be open, especially with how this team has gone over the last month and a half, where they're now 14 games under 500, they're 26 and 40 on the year. Especially after the thirteen and two start, they've gone what thirteen and thirty eight in their last fifty one ball games. If he could do it over, I think he would take away twenty twenty as a an opportunity for contention. Especially with the Astros, who don't look like they're going to be slowing down next season. You've got the Angels and Mike Trout under contract, and Shohei Otani will be healthy, fully healthy next season. The A's, you never know what they're quite going to do. 
The Rangers, they're actually the second-best team right now record-wise in the AL West. When I look at the Mariners roster right now and the guys who I think could be here when they possibly gear up for the next run at the playoffs, I see maybe three or four guys that could contribute in that capacity. And the number one guy I see on the roster currently, the the major league roster, is Yusei Kikuchi. And that's simply because he's under contract for the next three seasons beyond this one. And there's a possibility that through performance basis, he could trigger some uh, some options where he's here beyond the next three seasons. Yeah. And you look at his stuff, it's developing. And he's had success this season. And I think with his stuff that's still developing and still, you know, gaining speed and gaining traction here at the major league level, I think he is a guy who's going to improve year in and year out. I had high hopes for Marco Gonzalez at the beginning of the season. Yeah, he, I came, did. Out, he came out red hot. It looked like this guy was going to come out uh, and be not only a guy who could be at the top of your rotation, maybe not the number one guy like he has been this year, but two, three, be at the top of that that starting pitching rotation for you and be one of the main leaders in your clubhouse and a guy that you want, a competitive guy, a guy who holds people, uh, his, his teammates to a high standard. And uh, you, you have to love the way he came out. But now it's it's gone downhill since then. It has. And and I love Marco Gonzalez's personality. I love his makeup and, and the things that you pointed out, Jake, about him, his leadership, a guy who is you know going to hold people accountable and also hold himself accountable. But when I look at his stuff out on the mound, when I look at his, his just pitching repertoire, I don't see a guy who can anchor a playoff rotation. I don't see a guy who can anchor a rotation in very tight situations. When you are in a pennant race in August and September and games are close, I don't know if he has that within him right now. Could he get there? Absolutely. He's still young enough to wear... His game is going to continue to hopefully evolve into the kind of pitcher we that he showed last year that he could be. And and there were times last season where he was just flat-out dominant. And there have been times this season, especially at the beginning of the year, where they were flat-out dominant. But to me, I don't know if he is a guy, and, and I don't actually I don't think he's a guy that could be an anchor of a postseason staff. You look at Mitch Hanniger who today was removed from the game because of a possible injury, but there's a part of me that wonders if he was removed from the game because he just has not been playing well right now. Yeah. And you wonder, are his, you know, is his trade value the lowest it's been since coming to Seattle? He's leading the American League in strikeouts right now. That's not good. That's right. not good at all. And people can talk about, oh, well, the game has changed, home runs and and all of that, home runs and strikeouts, they, they both have gone up. But when you're talking about your five-tool player, the guy that you're trying to build around, leading the league in strikeouts is not the way to go about it. So there's actually news that just came out about Mitch Hanniger and his contusion. Okay. What it is. Okay. Uh, you may want to, you may want to like brace yourself. Okay. It's a testicular contusion. Yikes. Yo. Oh, man. Oh. That was not what I was expecting Yo. to hear. Uh, yeah, Greg Johns of MLB.com. Uh, that is 
the reason why Hanniger left today. So maybe I, I do believe the the contusion now because that is a that is unfortunate. Um, but getting away from that, which I mean, yikes! Wow, uh, <laughs> that would explain some things. Yeah. But uh, so I. Never wish that on anybody. No. And not for our boy Mitch Hanniger, so please no. uh, rest up. I don't know what it Put takes to recover from that, but uh, please do what you can to get yourself back and healthy. Oh. Ugh, brutal. Yikes. Uh, so, so, but getting back to is 2020 or 2021 realistic for these Mariners, when I look at the help on the way in the minor leagues, Obviously, the name that everybody that is on the tip of every Mariners fan's tongue right now, especially in the minors, is Jared Kelnick, who's 19 years old and he's tearing up a ball. And there's only two levels of baseball between him and the majors right now: Double A AA and Triple A. And based off of how quickly they have moved him through the Mariners system right now, where he remember he started this year at West Virginia, which was a level below Modesto, where he's currently playing. Based off of that trajectory. I would not be shocked to see him in Double A by the end of this season. Yeah, and I wouldn't be shocked to see him at the major league level by next year. I, I agree. This guy, this guy, Jared Kelnick, has shown that as a young as a young player so far, he has handled everything as a pro. And this is a guy who is extremely talented, who is ripping it up so far. Every challenge they've given him, he has taken it head on and has been able to make it seem easy. Now continue to challenge this young kid because I think that this is what he thrives on. I think he thrives on a challenge. And so the obviously you don't want to uh, rise him through the ranks too quickly, but I think that trajectory of what you're talking about is probably right if he continues to show you what he has so far this season. And actually when you look at it, when you look at this farm system so far from the Mariners, there are a lot of interesting prospects and you have not been able to say that in quite some time, but there are a lot of interesting prospects that you look at this group and say, okay, I think there's some guys that could really make big contributions, and that's another key factor in this, Curtis, is how quickly can this young group of prospects get themselves MLB ready to go? And you look at Justice Sheffield, we'll probably end up seeing him. I would Probably later uh, this season. Right, probably in July, I would guess, after the All-Star break. Uh, I, I, Justin Dunn has continued to uh, pitch well. Uh, you look at uh, a guy, uh, outfielder Jake Fraley, he is ripping it up right now. Texas in, League Player of the Month. Yeah, in double A. And, and that's a guy, to me, I, I would like to see this guy get raised up through the ranks a little bit quicker because he has shown that he can absolutely make a contribution. I would be, look, I don't know baseball. I don't know exactly how you the proper way to bring up prospects and so I'm not the one to judge this off of but in my opinion with what you're seeing in the outfield Jake Fraley is a guy how he's hitting how he's handling himself I would love to see this kid in the major leagues with the Mariners at some point this season and it's not like his defense can be any worse than what we've seen from Alex and Domingo no there's not a chance it could be worse I mean come on uh I look at the guys in the minor leagues right now for the Mariners who are sort of knocking at the door beyond Kelnick. I don't know if there is a guy in the minor league system that can be a superstar level player. There's Julio Rodriguez who is 18 years old and he's at uh, class a West Virginia who could, who could potentially develop into that. 
but he is still probably two to three years away from contributing at the major league level. Logan Gilbert probably a year or two away from moving up in the Mariners system. Justin Dunn could possibly be up with the Mariners by the end of this season, but probably next year is a more likely estimated time of arrival. But if you're going to try and compete with these young guys by 2020, that means you're going to have to speed a lot of these guys through the system, which is why I don't think 2020 is going to be a year in which the Mariners are contenders. And I think it also has to do in large part with the free agency class that comes out next year for baseball. It is awful. Like, there are no names next season. I believe, like, I'm not even making this up. Nick Castellanos, who is, like, he's an okay player for the Detroit Tigers. He plays third base and plays outfield. He's probably the best hitter available. Wow. You think that's going to be a guy that you build a contending team around? And Absolutely not. A centerpiece? No, he's he's a nice piece to have, mm-hmm. but he is not a franchise-changing player. Well, and and the interesting thing is, is you're going to be able to get Felix Hernandez off your books uh, and you're going to be able to clear a lot of payroll after this next season, and then you've got Kyle Seager in two years. Am I right on that? Two years from, from now, yeah. Kyle Seager will come off your books. Uh, I believe that this is an opportunity for them realistically to go after this thing in 2021. If they want to continue to see progression of their young prospects, Jerry Depoto has to hit. He has to hit. He has, he has to have targeted the right guys in this farm system, and Jared Kellenick and, and guys like Jake Fraley give you hope that he has done that. Logan Gilbert, Justice Sheffield, uh, Adam Dunn, those are guys that, or Justin Dunn, sorry, those are guys that give you hope that this thing could progress moving forward, but I don't think any of those players are realistically ready to go in 2020. So my hope is that they continue to progress. As a team, you start to find some of those foundational players at the major league level and you start to build your payroll where you get some relief in 2020 where you're ready now to bring your prospects up, your young talent in 2021, and now as a payroll, you're ready to go all in and be able to compete at the level that you have promised the Seattle fans, these Seattle Mariners who are desperate, so very desperate to see this team get into the playoffs and be a a legitimate contender uh, and not just one that's trying to scrape by and get in the wild wild card playoffs. I get that that would be an awesome thing, but let's shoot higher than that, and I believe that that's what they're trying to get done. Coming up next, who has made the best impression over the course of OTAs with the Seahawks over the last couple of weeks? We answer that question next and three more in four-down territory right here on Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. This this is four down territory on Seattle Sports at Night. You gotta dig deep, deep, deep. Four down territory coming up on the end of the first half of Seattle Sports at Night. Means we got to be quick. We only got four chances to get in the end zone, so let's get to first down. Number one. First down to you, Curtis Rogers and Jake Heaps here, Jake. You've been out there for pretty much every single Seahawks OTA. Who made the best impression on you over the course of those? To me, I look at this and I look at the text line and I see 425 and he says, the answer to the teaser question you just dropped, please let it be Rashad Penny. And, sir, I am happy to fulfill that. It is Rashad Penny. And the reason why it's Rashad Penny is... 425, walking a little taller. Not because Rashad Penny has just 
physically blown everybody away with his incredible skill set, but that he's been able to go through OTAs healthy. He's been able to go through OTAs showing that explosion. He's trimmed down. He has talked about his maturity level and understanding how it's how, what it takes to be a pro. And I think that was something that was a big learning curve for him last year. And you could just see him being more sure of himself, more sure of seeing the lanes in the running game and hitting it harder uh, and also getting a better grasp of this offense. And for me, that was exciting to see because if the Seahawks can have a legitimate one-two punch with Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, to me, everybody's arguing, who who's going to be the number one back? Is it going to be Rashad Penny? Who cares? I want both of those guys to perform at an elite level because that's what this offense requires and is going to be needed for this offense to explode and get even better going into 2019. Number two. Second down here on Four Down Territory. Has there been anything that surprised you when watching the Seahawks defense during OTAs? The thing that has really surprised me is actually watching defensively. This is kind of the time to really experiment with your defense and kind of see if uh, you like some of your new blitz packages, new coverages, things like that. And what I've seen from this defense so far, more than I've ever seen them in the last few years, is they really have been practicing a too high shell more than more than uh, than I've than I've seen. Uh, and what I mean by that is they've been playing more cover two. They've been playing more quarter quarter half, which is cover four on one side, cover two on the other. And I, I am interested to see if that's a trend that they actually go forward with into the season. Pete Carroll has always been a one-high team, cover three and man-to-man coverage. And I believe that's going to still continue to be their bread and butter and probably 70% of their coverage. But if it's 30% too high shell, that will be a significant difference from all the other years under Pete Carroll. And, that, and so far, that has been the biggest thing that I've seen this defense experiment with. Number three. Third down to you, Jake. Seahawks offense, a lot of questions about it heading into 2019. Are they going to throw more? Are they going to continue to run? How are they going to get the wide receivers involved without Doug Baldwin? My question to you is how can the Seahawks offense realistically evolve in 2019? Well, how they realistically can evolve, I know there's a great, great debate that will consistently always go on about should they pass more, should they run more. Uh, And I think it's been hard for fans and and the analytics world to see the Seahawks go very differently from the rest of the league and be a run-first oriented team. And the reason why is because you don't need to run the ball 30-plus times a game to set up the play action. Statistics show, analytics show, that you don't need to do that in order to be an effective play action team. And so what I believe that this evolution is going to be is, is that this offense isn't going to change. It's not going to go more spread. You're not going to see a significant amount more of drop back pass from Russell Wilson. But you are going to see a little bit of an uptick, and you're going to see a little bit more of an uptick in the play-action pass game. And they're going to evolve their play-action pass game. Instead of the traditional seven-step drop under center play-action pass, you're going to see them a little bit of of heavy shotgun play-action pass. You're going to see them use a little bit more of an RPO flavor style of play-action pass. They're going to utilize the strengths of their quarterback, their offensive line, and receivers to take on this vertical threat and be unique and different and evolve going into year two. Number four. Fourth down. 
By the way, RPO flavor, my favorite kind of ice cream. Uh, fourth down, XFL Seattle with two pretty big-name hires on their offensive staff. Mike Riley, former Oregon State head coach, former Nebraska head coach, and Butch Goncharoff, former Bellevue High School head coach, both added to the offensive staff. How would you rate the hires made by Jim Zorn? I like the hires that, that Jim Zorn made. I think Mike Riley brings a wealth of knowledge from his experience, but also I believe he's one of the better offensive-minded coaches in this game at the collegiate level and also here in the professional level. And I think that Jim Zorn and Mike Riley together are going to be a really fun combination. And to see the type of offense that they develop together will be unique and interesting in this XFL-style game. And Butch Gontroff is a fantastic football coach. Obviously, we know the level of success that he had at the high school level here at Bellevue High School and was a very, very good coach that I always respected um, and was able to play against uh, my sophomore year at high school, but always a coach that I had heard deserved to try and experience a higher level of coaching, go after the college ranks, because not only could he run a well-oiled machine, a wing T offense, but he had a great culture uh, and was a very, very knowledgeable coach. So to see him get this opportunity uh, at the professional level and be a running backs coach, I'm excited for him. It, it's also great to have a local name on this staff in addition with Jim Zorn. And I'll tell you what, those running back fakes, those play-action fakes, uh, yeah, gonna, they are going to be deadly. This, <laughs> those defenses are not going to know who has the ball reminiscent of his wing T days at Bellevue High School. That was Four Down Territory. Make sure you're downloading the Seattle Sports Night podcast on 710sports.com. Click it on podcasts or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Coming up next, we haven't talked about Bobby Wagner's contract status for a little bit. So does Bobby Wagner sign before the conclusion of minicamp, which ends on June 13th? We talk that next. Curtis Rogers, Jake Eves, Seattle Sports Night on 710 ESPN Seattle.